Before we begin this show, I wanted you to know that this episode contains some conversation about prostitution and sexual exploitation. Just wanted to give you a heads up about that in case this is not a topic you feel comfortable engaging in at this time. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is just a distinct joy to be with you today as we welcome our very special guest, Harmony Grillo. Miss Grillo is a survivor of exploitation turned UCLA honor student. Harmony's goal is to help women and girls entrenched in sexual exploitation find freedom. Armed with personal experience, evidence-based theories, and a master's degree in social work, she comprehensively sheds light on the impact of a pornified culture and the lives of those trapped within it. Her pursuit of justice has led to the congressional recognition and opportunities to train the Department of Justice and the FBI in best practices. In 2003, she founded Treasures to support other women in their recovery from the commercial sex industry and trafficking, and her memoir, Scars and Stilettos details her harrowing account of moving from victim to survivor to to liberator. Today, Harmony will share some of her story, and as you will hear, she is uh, she's very affirming to me in regards to how I lead us into that story. And I honestly, I thought about cutting that part out, but I I ended up leaving it in because I learned a lot from her about how we can use our own history without really letting it define us and define our our future. And so Harmony is certainly doing that and the conversation we had for me was a real lesson in how we can learn together. She is certainly doing that and being an activist for so many people. And also just a quick programming note, please stick around to the end of the show for a special announcement about The New Activist. Here is Harmony Grillo. You have shared so much of your life, both in interviews and in your really emotional, groundbreaking memoir, Scars and Stilettos. But I'm curious, like your story, a lot of the story that you share starts as a 13-year-old when your mom leaves you and suddenly you have this massive responsibility. First of all, is it okay if I ask you about this? I know you talk about it a lot, but it's still really personal just because it's, even though it's all over your website and stuff. Can I yes. ask you about You know, okay. first of all, I, mean, I just want to thank you for asking if you could ask me because very few people do that. And I, I really appreciate that. So, <laughs> yeah. yes. This is like so personal. I'm like, golly, I don't know if I can do this, but yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. no, I appreciate okay. you asking, but we, we can do this. Okay. Okay. Well, feel free to bounce back on me if there's anything that's just too far into it because, um, I want to be respectful of your story. So I'm curious, like, what's inside a 13-year-old's head when when this happens? Like, can you take us inside the moment when the weight of the world suddenly just comes crashing in on your shoulders? So you know what's interesting about it? So I was a very strong-minded, independent 13-year-old. And, you know, my mother had a lot of unresolved trauma. So she was struggling with substance abuse issues and just a lot of, you know, difficult things. So you know, at that time, I was happy she left. So I I can't sit here and tell you that I was like, sitting in the corner and weeping. And you know, for my eight year old brother, it was a different story. And that was difficult. And now looking back, like, 
my heart really breaks for him because I see, you know, and I was, I was always kind of a mother figure to him, but I see just um, the pain that that brought for, for, you know, we were literally left with no parental supervision, just the two of us on our own for, for three months. And so I was happy. It wasn't until years later that I started to process a, this kind of like core sense of abandonment that it brought. But at the time, I didn't feel that way. I was, I was like, fine, good. Okay. Now I can take care of things how I want to take care of things and we'll stop fighting, you know? So, and we were already living in poverty. So not having the food that maybe another family or person would be used to having, it just was it, not much change, you know? So, so you already knew how to do stuff like go find dinner. Like you already knew how to do a lot of this stuff. I'm just trying to think of it practically like the situation you find yourself in. Like it sounds like you already had to live pretty scrappy and had a lot more street smarts than maybe like another 13 year old. Like Yeah. So we lived, we lived on tortillas and butter because I had $20 on the book of food stamps. And once that was gone, I started stealing from the liquor store to get food for us. And, um, you know, my biggest concern with that was getting caught and, if I got arrested, who would take care of my brother? I would have him wait on the corner just in case I got caught and told him if anything happens, just run. I didn't tell him I was stealing. He probably knew. I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. And then we had this landlord. This is the real saving grace is we had this landlord who had inherited the house and it was paid off. And he, he, he my mom went nine months one time without paying rent and he couldn't bring himself to evict her because he knew she'd be homeless with two kids. So he would come around to try to collect the rent. And we did what we always had done when we didn't have the rent money, which is that it was kind of, it's like a bungalow and it was kind of on a raised platform, a raised foundation. So we would lay down underneath the windowsill. So when he looked in the windows, he couldn't see us. And we would oh. just wait until he left. <laughs> so oh my like, gosh. Yeah. So you just had, you unfortunately had everything you needed already to figure out how to live alone. Yeah, pretty much. To like graze your brother. Yeah. So, and again, I want people to read the book and I I don't want to have to go make you go through like beat at a time of this, but there comes a point where you enter into a relationship, a relationship that ultimately turned out, as you said, quote, to be toxic, abusive, and ultimately exploitative. As someone that works for IJM, I would say one of the questions I get the most (laughs) from people is, how do I protect my own family from this? How do I protect my own children from this? And I don't always have a great answer, but I'm curious for you, like, what have you learned from that relationship that you would pass along, if anything? Maybe it totally doesn't connect, but I'm curious what you what you learned from that. I mean, so first of all, like one of the reasons when I went about writing my memoir, it was really important to me to write it like a novel, that it would really draw people into the story and invite them into the story so they could, and I do a lot of like, there's a lot of dialogue and there's a lot of thought process where I'm exposing kind of my thought, what I was thinking and how I was feeling in those various moments. Cause I want people to understand how this happens and what kind of mindset someone might be in that finds themselves exploited by a Romeo pen. You know, that's important to me to expose, but I would say at the core, when it comes down to it, um, it had to do with a really a lack of, of um, a sense of identity and confidence in who I was. A lot of that had been already really disrupted by experiences of sexual abuse that really warped the way I saw myself, the way I saw the world around me, what I felt about myself. I had a lot of um, self-loathing and hatred. And yet, of course, like every human, this deep need to be loved 
and validated and known and seen. And so one of the tactics that Romeo pimps use is they know how to find and prey upon those young people who do have that void and are insecure and struggle with a lack of a sense of identity. And they, they meet that need for the sole purpose of exploiting it. And so it actually, the term that I think that reflects it is identity disturbance, right? And so that's a term that's used in the, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that they use to diagnose. And so it's a form of, um, you know, just where your identity actually becomes dependent on this person because they build you up and they kind of pour into you in one moment and then tear you down the next. So then your whole sense of self is like anchored to them and what they think of you. But if you already have a strong sense of identity, it's much harder. You don't get me wrong. It happens. I know some, I have a a dear friend of mine who's a leader in the movement whose story was very different than mine. She came from a middle class, upper middle class family. And she did have all the, the insulators to protect her, but she still ended up getting exploited. But all that to say, it's much easier for them to exploit someone who doesn't have a sense of identity. Did anyone help you? Like, did anybody like see that there's this, I mean, even like 15, 16 year old child who's just suffering. Did anybody reach out? Was there anybody that, where were people? (laughs) Well, on one hand, I say, why weren't the neighbors calling the police? On the other hand, they might've been, but the police, I lived in a neighborhood that the police didn't come to after dark, that that they didn't always respond to your calls. But there were a couple of people along the way that really did make a difference. Um, And one of them was a school psychologist. I don't know how I ended up seeing her. I think of her often because I never fully told her what was happening in my life, but she saw something was wrong. But when I would come into her office, I would tell her, I'm afraid I'm losing my hearing. I'm afraid I'm losing my eyesight. I'm afraid I have like, I was somaticizing is what they call it. All of my emotional pain. I was like turning into physical pain and, you know, and fears around my physical self. And rather than be like, okay, your hearing's fine. Let's talk about what's going on at home. She took me to get my hearing checked. She took me to get my vision checked. She took me to the doctor and look, and look, now we do trainings and we train people on best practices and how to really effectively care for those that have experienced exploitation and trafficking. And that's one of the things we teach them is meet the person where they're at, because it's important that we, we list, we really lean and listen to what's happening in this person's life. What's important to them in this moment? What are they expressing their, their felt need is and how can we arrive for them in that and not put our own agenda on them. And because she was willing to do that, even though I'm sure she knew she probably sensed my vision and hearing were fine and they were, but in arriving for me and meeting me where, where, she, where I, where I was at, she built rapport and trust with me. So I did start to tell her little bits and pieces about what was happening in my life. And when they, there was a, a shooting in my school, cause there was, um, just a lot of, you know, rivaling, just different things happening in in that school, she helped me get transferred to a different school. And she, she actually out of her own checkbook paid for my dance classes because she knew I love dance. And so she wow. paid for me to take a dance class every Saturday out of her own pocket. So there were people like that, but at the same time, you know, like so many people who have experienced abuse and trauma, I was really silent about most of that for most of my life. So, you know, people, you know, didn't know the full story. Wow. What an amazing human being. Mm -hmm. 
So you eventually uh, find yourself working in a strip club at the age of 19. Uh, a boyfriend, it says in your book, becomes your pimp and is controlling of every move and takes all your money. And so eventually it says that you discover a path to freedom and a whole new life. Mm-hmm. How did you discover that path? Because at this point, it just seems like every factor is just between the need for money, the psychology that's involved in it. This is now your life. Like, How on earth do you escape those many, many cycles? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a whole thing, but yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it really started for me, speaking of impactful people, with um, a friendship that changed my life. And it wasn't a therapist. She didn't have any kind of degree. She didn't run a nonprofit. She was just a college kid who was taking a local ballet class. Once again, here's that thread. And I one day decided I was going to sign up. I started taking classes and, you know, she and I would stand next to each other at the ballet bar. And she just was kind and didn't take herself seriously and fun and very welcoming. And, you know, when I found out that she was a Christian, I, and for some reason I told her the truth, I didn't tell her everything, but I told her that I was working as a stripper because that was part of my story is that I was exploited out, out of those strip clubs and she didn't judge me. And I thought I was really shocked by that because I had not met a lot of Christians in my life, but it really challenged any preconceived notions I had about them. And she just loved me. And never felt like she was trying to fix me or change me. But really, again, there, there it is again, met me where I was at and loved me. And so it was that friendship. And I began to see, I had the opportunity to experience someone who had healthy boundaries and self-respect and um, just a strong sense of identity and a life that looked really light and healthy and happy and joy-filled. And I was, I wanted that. And, you know, for me, I, my faith was a huge part of, I would say the main part of my recovery and my, my journey to freedom. And then on top of that, it's like when people are like, well, what, what do you have to do? How do you get well? How do you overcome? There's not like a three-step plan. I wish there was, but whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And I think that's one, that's one thing that I can, I can take credit for in this process is that I have fought for my recovery. I have fought for my recovery. I used to drive every Friday night over three hours in Los Angeles traffic to get to a recovery group that I needed to go to when I was a single mom with a baby in my backseat. And if that meant scraping my money together to pay for a therapy session to process, you know, the, the effects of sexual abuse or reading like millions of books on recovery, like I have done it and I've fought for that. And and that's what it that's what it takes but the the other one of the key ingredients really is healthy reciprocal relationship with people who just love you right where you're at and that's the gift that that friend gave to me and that's really what started it all which then leads me to i, I really want to talk about the work that you do because you founded an organization called treasures mm-hmm. could you uh, and would you please give us sort of the elevator speech of what treasures is yeah, for sure. So Treasures is um, we empower women to find healing and freedom from the uh, exploitation and trafficking through the commercial sex industry. And we do that using mentoring, support groups. We have an emergency relief fund. We partner with a lot of other organizations to make sure that they're getting all their various needs met um, and really come alongside them in their recovery process. And it's beautiful. And then the other thing that we do is we train people around the world in best practices for outreach. One of the things we're known for is our strip club outreaches. Um, and that's something that I started, you know, back in 2003 and 
I want to give people the tools so they don't have to reinvent the wheel and they can save themselves some, <laughs> some mistakes. So we just have taken everything we've learned about outreach and about care and really what, what works and what doesn't. And we put that into a training. So we train people around the world um, to do this work. So how do you reach the women who you're trying to serve? Do you just like go into clubs? Do you, how do they find you? How do you find each other? Yeah. So we have a few different areas of outreach. We do outreach into strip clubs. We do outreach to women in porn through HIV testing centers where they go. We do outreach in online forums where women and girls are being, um, either they're a list posting themselves or their pimps and exploiters are, are posting them. And then just through our kind of online presence and some media, you know, I was featured in Glamour in 2007 or six. And that really, we just ended up developing this kind of like women from around the world were reaching out to us for help. And just through some of those different media outlets over the years, that's, it's through word of mouth and through them hearing about us through this or that place. And then, so with some of our, our groups, especially during COVID are virtual so we have women logging into our support groups from all around the world. And yes, that's been really awesome. Wow. So I'm curious when, when then you find each other and one of these modes of communicating to each other work, I'm curious how the women are when they reach you, because I have found, I'm curious if it's just like overwhelming gratitude that it's like, finally I'm out or, or is it a pretty mixed emotion? Because there are a lot of things like with your story that are crashing in at the same time. Like there is a lack of income that is happening immediately in that moment. There is a disruption of a massive industry that's happening in that moment. There's even a psychological, there's a lot of psychological components I would imagine happening that I'm curious how they are in those early days and what you find yourself encountering. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really all over the map because, you know, a lot of women reach out to us and they're not out and they are, maybe thinking about leaving, maybe they're trying to decide if they can, trying to figure out how, how they can safely. And so, um, you know, we help them with that process. Others have left and are looking to recover. Some have left and are thinking of going back. And so again, going back to meeting women where they're at and we, one of the models that we use is stages of change and really just having the under understanding where a person is at in their readiness to change. So some people are, you know, they talk about pre-contemplation. They're not even thinking about changing. It's important to know that so that you don't try to like rush that person along because they're really not thinking about it, but you can meet them where they're at and help them maybe inch forward to where maybe they're going to start thinking about it. And someone who's thinking about it needs a safe place to explore pros and cons and to figure out what would their options be and how, what would it look like, but without feeling pressured to change or to make any big life changes. And then, you know, though there are some who now are out and they're figuring out how can I sustain this? How can I pay my bills? How can I, um, you know, figure out how to navigate life, you know, outside of all of that and deal with the trauma that that previous experience brought. And so, yeah, it's, it's people in all of the different stages and we just, we work with them right where they're at and kind of just arrive for them in that, in that space. Um, we also do partner with an organization that offers, um, occupational therapy and vocational training. So we're able for those that are wanting to, you know, figure out how to reenter the job market and get a job outside of exploitation. We have a resource that helps them do that. Yeah. It's so interesting. You, you continue like to, to hear your language. There is no question that you 
put this entire industry under the umbrella of exploitation. Well, first of all, is that fair to say? I don't want to put words in your mouth. I do do that. That is correct. That is how I see things. Yes. Yes. So that's so interesting because there's this just such a big polarizing narrative around the adult sex industry. I was listening to a very mainstream podcast the other day, and it was talking about some, I guess there's like an award show for pornography. And there were like famous people in attendance. And it was like, they were talking about people they met. And it was all this like, almost just like very normal thing. And I was listening to it. And I'm like, golly, there's like an award show for this. And so it's almost mainstream. Can you tell me how you like, um, what you make of that disparity? Because on one hand, there's famous people going to a big popular award show. And then there's you calling it exploitation. Like, what is going on in that disparity? Yeah. So first of all, when I'm on this podcast, I can go ahead and say, yes, I think it's all exploitation. If, if someone comes to me and they're working in porn and maybe, you know, whatever, are saying they feel great about it, I'm not going to be like, well, you do know it's exploitation, right? Like, so mm-hmm. um, in almost 20 years of doing this, I've never told someone that they should leave or focused on, do you know how the bad the industry is for you, blah, blah, blah. And the research actually shows us that 89% of women in the commercial sex industry want to leave but they don't see any other options for survival. So I don't need to go around trying to convince people that they should leave or that the industry's exploitative. There's 89% that want out. So we have our, our hands full just trying to support those that are looking for support for that. that now, if, you, if that stat is correct, and that stat is from um, research that was done by Dr. Melissa Farley across, I believe it was nine countries, and they did a similar study in strip clubs and found the same number. So if that stat is correct, that means there are 11% who would say, this is what I want to do, right? That 11% tends to speak out louder about how it's just a job and it's just, you know, and then, you know, with this, there's a huge push to further legitimize and normalize, um, you know, what people want to refer to as sex work as just a job through full decriminalization. And that's that's the main argument is that this is just a job and it should be treated as just a job and therefore it should be fully decriminalized because people it's consenting adults doing what they want with their own bodies and they should be allowed to do this and who are we to judge? And part of the narrative is it's the fact this is this is what they argue. I'm not saying this, so just let, let's just yeah, be clear. Yeah. This is the argument. The argument is it's not prostitution that's inherently harmful, damaging, dangerous. It's the fact that it's criminal <laughs> that makes it harmful, dangerous. What, but that's not true because if you look at, there was actually another study that looked at prostitution in 150 countries. And they found on average that in places where prostitution was legalized or decriminalized, that there was a huge increase in exploitation and trafficking. And why? Because when it's decriminalized, this is also what the research shows, people who didn't previously purchase sex will now purchase sex. There's an explosion in demand. In order to meet that demand, you traffic and exploitation ha- have to happen, and it gives pimps and traffickers incentive to push people into the marketplace to sell them because the demand has increased. The other thing is there have been studies that have shown that in places like, for example, Nevada, where prostitution is legal in some counties, that it did not decrease violence against people in prostitution. And if you ask people, where is the peer-reviewed research that supports this notion that decriminalizing prostitution makes it safer, I haven't found anyone who can provide that to me. So, Okay, then help me understand this, because then I think that there's another side of this where it's there are women who are in the middle of just really brutal exploitation, 
who are then being arrested Mm-hmm. and taken to jail because they're prostitutes, right? Right, right, right. Okay. Like, I understand fully what you're saying, and I'm not at all arguing it. It's just I've never understood this part because it's like they're victims in this scenario, yet they're being arrested. So how does that work? Help me understand that. So I'm so glad you asked. So actually, I just did a TEDx talk on this called The Oldest Depression in the Book. It just came out on Monday. And what I argue in the TEDx talk, and I share my experience, I share some of the experiences of my mother Here's what it is. When you look at prostitution, there are essentially three parties involved. There's the person being sold, there some you know, the prostituted person, there's the buyer, and there's pimping and pandering. And so full decriminalization would remove all criminal penalties for all three parties. The problem is is that whenever you decriminalize purchasing sex, pimping and pandering, exploitation and trafficking increase, right? But you have the the person who is being prostituted, the person who is selling themselves, even if they're there by quote unquote choice, often they're driven there by a a number of vulnerabilities and poverty, histories of sexual abuse, being marginalized, having lack of education, lack of employable job skills, which is why prostitution has sometimes been called the choice made by those who have no choice. So that person, there's a model called the equality model that says two out of three of those are right. Yes keep criminalizing buyers, pimping and pandering, but decriminalize selling sex because this model, the equality model, sometimes known as the Nordic model, recognizes that people should not be criminalized for their own exploitation. So that's the hybrid model. And I think a lot of times people think that there's only two options, fully criminalize prostitution or fully decriminalize it, where there actually is this middle place where you can say, let's keep buying, pimping and pandering illegal, because that is ultimately what is going to effectively reduce demand and therefore reduce exploitation trafficking, but decriminalizing selling sex and instead of putting prostituted people in jail, give them opportunities to heal and recover and find, you know, develop programs that would help them work and thrive outside of having to sell their bodies. Okay. Thank you for that. The nuance in that. Is what you do dangerous? Because I'm, I'm thinking about this, like you, you're not only helping the individual, but you are a part of disrupting a robust economic system here. Like this is, there's a lot of money in this. Do you ever in any ways feel that pushback? There's been a lot happening with the, with, since the TEDx talk came out, I was ready for the backlash because that's what everyone has been preparing me for. Uh, What I wasn't ready for is my, the talk to be completely suppressed People are using tactics I never even knew existed. One is called spamdexing, where they're flooding YouTube, where where the video is hosted. They're flooding it with bogus playlists using my name and talk title. And the thumbnails for the playlists are porn. A lot of them are rape porn. So it's they're actually weaponizing women's... These are real women, right? In these images that are being exploited. And they're weaponizing that and using that to flood the internet with spam to push me and everything related to me. And ultimately what their goal is, is my talk to get it out of the search engine. So now YouTube seems to be from my perspective, treating my video like spam that I'm trying to get out about decrim. But so what's funny is that people have been warning me, get security cameras, get a guard dog up your security, you know, do all these things because the historically many people who have publicly spoken out against full decrim in a way that has actually made some waves have had death threats and, um, stalking and doxing and all of these things. So 
I was kind of ready for that, but I wasn't ready for them to like silence my video from being seen. Yeah. So it's definitely turning out a little bit different than I thought. And a bunch of us have been reporting. I mean, there's at least 50 playlists with my name and talk title with these pornographic thumbnails. And then there's like hundreds more that they've created that they've added my talk to as a video. So it also comes up. Someone said they spent an hour yesterday reporting each and every one. And I've, I've definitely gone on every day and reported and reported and YouTube's not taking them down. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been frustrating. Yeah. So there is a real element out there hoping that you will stop or trying oh, to get you to stop and sure. actively pushing back against you. Cause you aren't, I mean, this, this isn't about the person. This is about, you really are disrupting a massive industry with a lot of money and a lot at stake. Exactly. And the thing is, is that the average person in the public, most people, if this is not your day job, you don't know the difference between full decrim, the equality model, laws around all this, right? Like, so the average person is hearing this narrative that's continuing to be pushed forth that, you know, full decriminalization is the way to protect people in prostitution and it's just a job and this makes it safer and decreases trafficking. They're saying this. And the average person is going to vote based on their under belief that that's true and accurate. But those of us that are trying to speak up and say, no, it's not accurate. This is dangerous. And like, I'm not kidding when I say there are lives hanging in the balance, like legitimately right now across America, there are several states, including California. They just tried in LA, the, the DA here just decriminalized selling sex for first time sex buyers. They're doing stuff up North as well. And they're pushing these towards full decriminalization throughout the U.S. trying to get this push through. But the truth is, if this happens, it would be devastating because we know that if prostitution is fully decriminalized, people who didn't previously purchase sex will purchase sex, demand will increase, there are not enough people willing to sell themselves, more people will have to be trafficked in order to meet that demand. There are lives hanging in the balance here. So no, they don't want us heard. No, they don't want this message out there. And so I've been so amazed by the amazing community of people. Like right now, it seems like the only way you can find my TEDx talk is if you actually Google it intention, Google it intentionally search for it intentionally on YouTube or get a direct link from me. But I've yeah. got a whole community of people that are like getting on there, watching it, liking it, commenting, trying to like boost the, the momentum of it and reporting all these bogus playlists. And, yeah. you know, we're just, we're doing all we can to try to get this message pushed forward because it's important. And just as a programming note for folks listening, we will put the direct link to it. So you don't have to worry about finding any of the other thumbnails and things that you won't want to see. So we'll, right. just, we'll put the direct link in the show notes. That's so a great idea. That's that what there. I've been doing. I'm like, if you would like to see this without porn, here's yeah, the direct yeah, no, link. Exactly, exactly <laughs> so right. Great. Um, in our last few moments together, I, I want to ask just a couple of other kind of random pickup questions that, I, that I'm curious about, because there is a faith-based element to treasures, yet you are also quick to say that all are welcome. Yeah. But I'm curious, like, to what end does faith play in this work for you? Yeah, so we are a faith-based organization, but we provide services to everyone regardless of their faith. And so what this looks like for us, again, it, it's so much of it really is meeting people where they're at, because if a person wants to include faith, a faith piece in their recovery. Our mentors are equipped to do that. We're, we're equipped to do that. We, we have support groups that don't have any faith content at all. And we also now have a Bible study for women who do want to 
dig deeper and incorporate their faith into their recovery. You know, we have an annual retreat that is a spiritual retreat, but it's not one of those, we don't do any of that sneak around like, Ooh, come to this retreat. It's awesome. We're going to be hiking and exploring. And by the way, now we're preaching at you. Like we don't do that. We're like, Hey, it's a spiritual retreat. If you want to dig deeper into your faith, like this is please come. Right. But those who aren't wanting to do that, then they don't, that's not, we're not going to push that on them. So we're not proselytizing and nothing we do is contingent on, you know, someone choosing faith. Um, yeah. So we just love them, meet them where they're at and that's it. So. The other thing is looking at your website, there is a place to sign in and it's for, there's like big buttons everywhere that says industry and X industry girls. And if you click on that, they can get a free gift. Yeah, no. I'm curious what you send them. I know that's such a small question, yeah. but I just was thinking about what a tender thing so, yeah, to we, receive we in the mail. That. It's our, our care packages. And so that comes, we send a copy of my memoir. So sometimes like a woman has received a card from us in her gift bag on, at a strip club, let's say on a Friday night, right? She doesn't know who we are, except for we've been coming to her club. And so getting to hear and read my story, hopefully will give her another kind of clue into who we are and like, Hey, some of us have been through it. Like we're not here to judge you. We get it. Right. So we send them a copy of my memoir. We send them it, depending on what they've said, their, their current situation is we have a whole library of other books that we we send as well, depending on their situation, a handwritten card, we'll throw in some fun jewelry. It depends on what we happen to be in that season, putting on our care packages, but we just try to make it something just fun and special for her to open that communicates her value and is another way for us to just, um, you know, love on her and then also build rapport and relationship, um, so that we can keep supporting her. Got it. That's beautiful. Thank you for, uh, for answering that. I, the last thing is there are people listening who's, uh, I think are, reeling. I mean, I know I am. I feel like I've just learned so much information about a world that I just did not know about. And I, they're sitting here and their bells are rung and they're mm-hmm. like, okay, how do I help? So obviously I'll say it for you. The Treasures website is on our, in the show notes, go and give, go and shop, like go and, but outside of that, as people think about like, I want to help in my own community. This is a big systemic kind of scary thing to walk into. How does an actual normal person help? Yeah. Well, I'm huge on training. I'm huge on getting equipped. So we have our, our online, our digital training that's available. There's three different tracks to choose from depending on your needs and what you want to get trained in. And if you're like, "Hmm, I don't know, we actually have an hour long free training called how to help someone who's stuck that they can find at iamatreasure.com forward slash stuck. And it just helps you start to understand some of the dynamics that would keep people trapped in these situations. And sometimes there's these misunderstandings about trafficking that people are like chained in basements. And so often the tactics that pimps and traffickers use are psychological and the chains are psychological. And so we try to help people understand that a little bit better. So if people want to look into that, it's iamatreasure.com forward slash stuck. They can also find out more about our training on our website. And we have also a page called Get Involved that just gives you a number of ways that you can get involved um, with treasures. And we'd love to have you. I am struck by your story and the fact that you have been living this since you were 13. And then you're doing this work and you have been in this world since you were like 19 years old. I mean, just a young child, right? I'm curious how the toll, if any, that it takes on you 
to just be in this world all day. Like the stuff that you have just talked about so casually in the last 40 Mm. minutes with us is just part of your world. I'm curious how you do that. Yeah, that's such a good question. Well, first of all, with this field, and I'm sure many of the people who work in IJM know this, there is a real exposure to secondary trauma. And so there is secondary PTSD. Sometimes, you know, it's called different things, but secondary PTSD is real where you actually just from being exposed to the level of trauma, we can have start to take on symptoms of PTSD. So yeah. grounding techniques that help us downregulate self-care is important for me. I'm, I keep my Sabbath, like I protect my my downtime, I have to create a schedule with margin and self-care and my, and I, my, I fight for this for my staff as well. So that's so important. And we, we actually do, we talk about this in our trainings as well and give people techniques for navigating this because the only way to stay in this for the long time, long haul is to first of all learn about what are the signs of secondary trauma how what are those trauma exposure responses and how do we mitigate them how do we navigate them so that we can sustain this work because it is hard and i have seen i've been in it almost 20 years and to my right and to my left colleagues have stepping back and stepping down because it's hard it's hard to sustain so i actually want to just thank you because What's also interesting is in this movement, there's a big, um, almost a demand for survivor stories. And I, and I get it. And I, I believe that story is powerful. It helps people understand the realities of exploitation and trafficking. It shows what's possible. It gives people hope what can be overcome. I, I wrote my story. I don't regret that. I've been telling my story for almost 20 years. And the other thing is there is a cost to telling our stories again and again and revisiting the trauma again and again. And you don't know this, but I'm actually in a season right now where I have decided that I'm not going to be telling that three minute bullet point version of my story anymore. Oh. I'm choosing now. I'm going to, I'm going to say no if I need to. So almost everyone who's reaching out to me and saying, can you share a story? I'm like, Hey, can we talk about how I overcame? Can we talk about, so what I, but I want to honor you and thank you because you began this podcast with just the simple fact that you asked me permission actually empowered me to say yes or no. And you know, I was going to gut flinch say no, but because I felt so honored and empowered and respected by the question, I chose to say, yes, let's talk about it because I've, that made me feel safe. And I'm, I'm saying that because if people are listening and they do have opportunities to invite survivors to share their story, I want them to learn from that and see that that's such a beautiful model. The other thing is, is that the way you asked questions that first of all, you, I can see that you had done your research and you asked such thoughtful, caring questions that it actually made me want to have a conversation about my story. And I don't think a lot of people take the time to do that. And I don't think a lot of people understand what it costs for someone to revisit their trauma again and again, and that it truly is a very tender thing. And so I just, um, I just wanted to highlight that because I could see that you understood that and it made me feel comfortable to share. Well, it's kind of you to say, I I just could not get over the fact that it's like, I mean, like, I know you're used to talking about it and you must've gone on a book tour, but I'm like, this is a, (laughs) like, I don't, I've never shared the most intense parts of my life ever once. Right. And the fact that you're just like, yeah, it's Friday morning. This is what I'm doing. This is just a real quick overview of the most horrific 
you know, decade of my life, no big deal. Like it's just got to take a toll. And Anyhow. here, here's what's hard is a lot of survivors are required to, it's like, it's almost like it's a prerequisite to being right. in anti-trafficking and that's not fair. No. And that's not okay. It can't be required. It can't be a prerequisite. If you as a staff are not required to share the deepest, darkest, most difficult, painful, traumatic parts of your life as a job requirement, then it shouldn't be required of survivors unless they specifically sign up for some kind of job that like requires it. But like, and, but unfortunately so many people in the movement, um, you know, are learning this and it's taken us a while to get around to learning it. But I just wanted to take a moment and just recognize and honor the way you approached requesting that I talk about my story and asking permission was just really like spot on and something to be learned from. Good. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I really appreciate you spending time with us today and kind of answering all the questions you've answered so many times. I feel like I, we have all learned a great deal and have benefited a great deal just from your willingness and just crazy transparency. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so honored. Thank you so much for having me. Well, my deepest thanks to Harmony, both for her work and for her willingness to chat today on the show and to share so much of her story, a story that she has shared other places, but she was willing to go there again today with us so that we could learn and benefit and hopefully move forward in support of the work that she is doing. To that end, exact links to her work and everything are in the show notes, as well as a link to her TEDx talk, which I would highly recommend you watching. Uh, It's a little wonky sometimes getting to her TEDx talk. So we have the exact link inside of the show notes and you can watch it there and interact with her. As promised, a programming note about The New Activist. I wanted you to know that this will be our last episode of The New Activist together. For quite some time, I have been planning on taking the month of August off, which is a privilege, and am, even as you listen to this, embarking on uh, on a month off, a month of just being quiet, and a month of our family moving from one city to another city. It's an exciting time for us, to be sure. And as I have looked forward to this time, it has also become very clear to me that the new activist is done. The conversations are not done, the work of activism certainly is not done, and we have only scratched the surface. But this show in this place in this time has done its job, and I have been proud to be a part of it with you. And that's it. That's the entirety of the story. There have been so many memorable moments, and I am tempted in this time to go down memory lane. But I will say this. I think sometimes as I listen back to this show that I started The New Activist because I needed to learn something. <laughs> and I knew that if I could hit record and turn on a fancy microphone and get some people to talk to me, I might be able to better understand how I and we can serve in this world. To that end, I am incredibly grateful for people like Latasha Morrison and Austin Channing Brown and Mark from The Picnic Project, uh, from Sarah Groves and Eugene Cho, Propaganda, and really so many others. I'm locking myself into saying thank you to 100 people. But I am so appreciative that all of these people took the time to stop and talk to me and to talk to us so that we could better understand a little bit about how we can go and serve the world better. I hope that this show hasn't just been a place for us to go and feel a little bit better about what we're doing, but a show that actually activates us to go and do something. So my deepest thanks to you for listening, for propelling this show, 
My deepest thanks to every single guest, especially Esther and Jeffrey, who we spent time with in Ghana during the Esther series. And thank you to the staff of International Justice Mission, who have time and time again put the work of activism at the forefront and allowed this podcast to exist. As always, we thank Propaganda, who scored today's episode and so many episodes of The New Activist. I would ask you please to go to prophiphop.com, buy tickets to his show, buy his music, buy his merch, and hop online, thank him on social. His Twitter handle is at prophiphop. And if you are looking for a good next podcast to fill the new activist void, <laughs> I would listen to the Red Couch podcast that he and his wife host together. Oh, side note, while we're talking about podcasts, also, I would subscribe to the Be the Bridge podcast that Latasha Morrison hosts, as well as The Pursuit with Richard Lee. Love that. Just wanted to put that in there. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted and directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. Thank you to all of those people for all of their help. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Harmony Grillo, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>